Today's episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide. Want to make your next trip unforgettable? There's an easy way to do that. Book a Get Your Guide travel experience. No matter where your travels take you, Get Your Guide offers the best way to connect with your destination. Choose from over 100,000 travel experiences in the U.S. and around the world with Get Your Guide. Whether it's the Sherlock Holmes tour in London, the night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, or whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon, whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. You know, Julie, recently we were discussing something on here. I think it was something dolphin-related. And we ended up talking a little bit about the uh, ichthyosaurus. Yes. Which, uh, if you remember, I, 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 I refer to these as fright dolphins because they kind of look like nightmarish <laughs> dolphin creatures. They, very sharp rows of teeth, right? Yeah, yeah. They're you know, long extinct now, but uh, but they're they're of interest because they show up in the fossil record a lot. And um, and they're like bus size, right? Like yeah, school yeah, bus they size. Were big, big creatures. And. Uh, uh, it was after the podcast was over, I started looking up these guys again, and I happened upon a really fascinating news story uh, that came out um, about a year ago, and a number of you probably um, already heard this, but uh, you had um, a man by the name of Mark McMiniman, who's a paleontologist at Mount Holyoke College in South Hadley, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and he was speaking at the annual meeting of the Geological Society of America in Minneapolis. And he was uh, talking specifically about uh, a site uh, in Las Vegas, in uh, Nevada's uh, Berlin Ichthyosaur State Park, which 200 million years ago wasn't a desert, but was a seafloor. Mm-hmm. So you have all of these really cool uh, fossils, uh, and particularly you have uh, Ichthyosaurus uh, fossils. And you have this one area, though, that has really uh, perplexed uh, scientists for a while, uh, where you have uh, r- remains of nine different 45-foot Ichthyosaurus. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the 50s, there was this theory that the, that due to their position, we think they might have died in shallow water, and this was actually a tidal right. flat, um, or, or due to accidental, um, you know, toxic uh, plankton blooming in the area. But recently, uh, there's been uh, rock evidence to suggest this, these bodies were actually uh, much deeper uh, underwater mm-hmm. than previously thought. So it read uh, McMenamin to come up with a very fascinating theory. I mean, not just fascinating, just a mind-blowing theory, and it kind of a controversial theory that we're still still waiting to uh, uh, for for the rest of the scientific community to officially chime in on. Well, these fossils had patterns that resemble suckers on a tentacle, right? Right. And that was the big mystery. And so McMenamin came up with this idea 
that uh, this kraken-like creature, nearly 100 feet long, or 30 meters long, drowned or broke the neck uh, of these ichthyosaurus and then just, like, took them down to his lair. Yes. And, th- and then there are two additional layers of interest here, okay? Octopi, uh, it, as we'll discuss in this podcast, and other cephalopods, octopi especially, are, are rather smart creatures. They actually are capable of playing with things. They mm-hmm. get bored, and they take things apart, and they scrunch things up, and they uh, they can't keep their hands still. Uh, so they, I mean, their tentacles still, rather. So, uh, so the argument here is that uh, this ancient cephalopod giant mm-hmm. that uh, dined on ichthyosaurs uh, in the deep, that uh, that he or she also would play with his or her, her food. And then there's this added layer that McMiniman uh, adds to this, where he suggests that these creatures might have actually, uh, that the kraken may have actually formed these dead ichthyosaurs into the shape of a tentacle. That they may have, in playing with their bodies, actually created Art. The first art, like uh, an artistic interpretation of itself, which is, uh, which, which is, again, controversial theory here, but it's mm-hmm. just, it's really mind blowing and it d- just felt like we had to, to mention it. Well, I love the idea of it because I immediately think of the most scientific thing I can think of, which is, of course, Clash of the Titans. Yeah. <laughs> I think about, uh, you know, the Kraken being released from its underwater original chambers. Original or, uh, or the, the remake. The original, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Which granted, the, that creature, while awesome, wasn't like a actual squid. It was more no, like a it giant. It had a torso, with, yeah. and yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was sort of disappointing when it actually did emerge. Yeah, but uh, it does. It brings to mind creatures like that, uh, the, the, the kraken of myth. It brings to mind Cthulhu uh, yeah. and, and his intelligent, godlike squid in the darkness, and just the idea that in an age and in a in an age with so beyond human experience, and in a place so beyond human experience, that you could have this intellect capable of, of taking these grisly remains and wrenching them into its own shape. You know, it's just that... Well, th- and I think the reason why you can't help but get caught up in this explanation as radical and, and it's unlikely as it is... It's everything I want out of a is, news story, really. Right. You're, what you're doing is you're, you're marrying the brains that we know about cephalopods with brawn mm-hmm. to come up with this idea of them sculpting underwater... Um, but let's talk about the fact that, that there's some criticism, obviously, that, that you know, about this. Um, Triassic very... uh, Kraken, yeah. Yes, Triassic Kraken. Well, for starters, McMiniman, he's he's still standing by what he said, and he's working on, like, official um, uh, official studies uh, regarding this theory. So, so in his defense, he hasn't really t- had the chance to, to really come out full force with his findings and his theory. He's just he's just roughly alluded to it uh, at this conference and said, I'll get back to you when I have these finished. And everyone waits with bated breath. Right. But the, the, the critics have already pointed out that, well, that's a pretty imaginative explanation for what we're seeing here. And there are other explanations that don't involve uh, intelligent cephalopod artists in the Triassic Age. Yeah, there was there was one person who said that the hypothesis was a lot, you know, looking at these etchings, uh, that the hypothesis is a lot like looking at clouds and being able to see what you desire. That that this um, artifact isn't, or this specimen isn't really that well preserved in the first place. Yeah. So there's that. Um, then there is, of course, the idea that there's no direct evidence of really large cephalopods of that size. Um, and Glenn Storrs, curator of vertebrate paleontology at Cincinnati Museum Center, told Live Science that circumstantial evidence is not enough. Totally agree with that. Yeah, and what McMiniman's really going to want to have here is he needs to produce a beak or fossil evidence of the beak. Because uh, right. there, cause theoretically there could have been the tr- krakens everywhere back then. They could have just been ruling the roost. But there would have been so few of them, and they're mostly soft material. And as we've discussed before, fossilization is not a guaranteed process. It's uh, more the exception to the rule that we actually see fossil evidence of a creature that once lived. Now, I will play devil's advocate here, and I will mention the book called Kraken by Wendy Williams that that you lent me. And she does talk about this idea of um, cephalopods as, as very mysterious creatures that were for a long time in the category of cryptozoology. Yes. She says that even up until, like, I think the 1870s, they had a specimen... Uh, but it wasn't until the 1890s when, when the specimen was, you know, 
widely widely then vetted that people began to say this is a real thing. Yeah. So, of course, you have to produce the evidence in order to get there. Um, but I did want to play devil's advocate a bit to say that there's there's still you know this idea that a, a giant cephalopod could have existed a hundred yeah, foot it, long one. It's kind of a wild theory, but wild theories like dreams sometimes come true. Oh, it was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, okay, we're going to talk, obviously, a lot about cephalopods today because they are fascinating and because their brains are just a wonder. Um, in fact, um, you know, the brain in the cephalopod has really advanced our understanding of ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Our, our own uh, neuroscientists can definitely give a nod to cephalopods. Um, and even like a, a gerontology, the, the study of aging. So the brain of the cephalopod, it's, it's interesting because... Um Cephalopods are really not that far removed from, say, your your common garden slug. But we don't really look to the garden slug for any kind of staggering intellect. It's a pretty simple creature and pretty disgusting um, that really shouldn't exist at all. Whereas the cephalopods... But they do their jobs, man. Uh, What is their job? They're, like, turning up the dirt. They're, they're, they? making, okay. they're helping it to be more nutrient-rich. Oh, okay. Well, disclaimer, I, I kind of have a thing against garden slugs. Snails are fine. And then cephalopods are amazing, uh, even though they're, they're they're all basically buddies and probably email each other on the weekends. And uh, and the and the cephalopods are like, hey, sorry, dude, I don't know why Lamb is such a jerk about you climbing on things and sliming up his domain. But uh, like once one got in the sink and it, I almost threw up, it was disgusting. But uh, not a cephalopod. Now we know you're kryptonite. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, please don't mail me slugs, people. But uh, but the brain of a cephalopod is pretty amazing because. While uh, com- compared to the human brain, it's not really that impressive and it's not that big. But for um, um, an invertebrate, mm-hmm. and, and certainly for, for a mosque, these are amazing brains that they're packing. Uh, also, you have to keep in mind, cephalopods, we're generally talking about creatures that live only one to two years. Uh, right. And, but they're still, they're st- still have an incredible uh, brain activity going on. Well, and that one to two years is key in studying aging. Right. Because you can see it in real time right there. Um, this is from Science Magazine's uh, article, Tackling Brain Evolution with All Eight Arms. Uh, short of Martians showing up and offering themselves up to science, cephalopods are the only example outside of vertebrates of how to build a complex, clever brain, says neuroscientist Cliff Ragsdale of the University of Chicago in Illinois. For that reason, Ragsdale says, these creatures have much to teach us about brain evolution. So just how impressive is the cephalopod brain? Um, okay, so yeah, some some general modern cephalopod stats here. Um, they do have the most complex brains of any invertebrates. An octopus brain has 50 to 75 lobes and at least as many neurons, about 100 million as a mouse brain. And that is not taking into the account uh, the smaller brains in each arm, the still smaller brains called ganglia, mm-hmm. technically, associated with each sucker. Uh, cephalopods like octopus um, or octopi, okay, I think if we get the... the the, what do we decide on octopi as the uh, plural? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Cephalopods like octopi, uh, they're unique in that all these ganglias have condensed and they form a centralized brain. And the other thing that's unique is there are two areas of this brain that have developed that are specialized for memory storage. Mm-hmm. And we, we see this even in, in Nautilus, but that's jumping ahead a bit. Um, so their brains are larger and more condensed, and they also have an area dedicated to learning. Um, but here's the coolest thing. There are more neurons in the tentacles than in the central brains with the ability to make really lightning-fast decisions. Right. They have to – I mean, that's really where you get, get down to the, some of the reasoning here, um, specifically with the octopus, uh, going on and moving into the octopus section of the, the podcast here, I guess um, – the theory is that since the octopus has to live in oftentimes like a tropical coral reef environment, mm-hmm. they're in a very complex environment. These are this is the these are the streets of like 1970s New York. These are <laughs> this is the jungle. This is the you know this is the warriors, mm-hmm. and they have to have a lot of street smarts to survive. So this is kind of like animal street smarts. They have to they have to be dexterous. They have to be masters of disguise. They mm-hmm. have to be stealthy. They have to be killers. They have to be seductive. Well. M- a little seductive. seductive. Well, there is some seductive. Uh, um, you know, when you get into the, the various coloration and hunting schemes, I guess you can you can make that argument. But but they have to they have to to really be on their game. And so the arms race is to be this is is not to to simply hide, not to simply hunt, but to to manage all of these skills. Mm-hmm. 
And to do that, you need a pretty impressive brain and uh, and pretty impressive uh, uh, nervous tissue to boot. Yeah, let's talk about their tool use. We have mentioned this before, but uh, they are master tool users. Yes, um, there, there, there is uh, some fascinating footage you can find online of, to, of uh, octopi using coconuts for shelter. Basically, a coconut half, turn it up, you got yourself a house, which uh, is not that big of a revel- revelation for for us, but for a creature like this, it's pretty it's pretty phenomenal because uh, tool use is uh, is generally a mark of a pretty advanced uh, organism. But here's just uh, essentially a sea slug that is uh, that is not really a sea slug, but just to, to slander it a bit. This is a, a creature that uh, that is is akin to a sea slug, and it is uh, it has figured out how to use tools. Other examples you have the uh, the blanket octopus, which is immune to the man of war jellyfish sting. So what he does, uh, he or she does, is uh, the octopus uh, will glide down to the jellyfish to this uh, man of war, and it'll rip off a few tentacles, mm-hmm. and then it has this poisonous whip that it can use to protect itself. Uh, and some of the tentacles, too, they float away, and uh, there's some bioluminescence involved as well, right, to yes. distract, to make it say to the prey, well, you know, is, is, am I going this way or am I going that way? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it's, it's rather simple tool use. They are not uh, – and, and we have a whole episode on tool use if you really want to get into, like, the different levels of tool use and what mm-hmm. they mean uh, uh, in terms of an, uh, a creature's intellect. So they're not doing anything like uh, like creating true artifacts. They're not building bow and arrows yet. But they are, but they are saying, "Hey, that appendage on that creature there is is pretty, um, pretty hostile, uh, and uh, and it makes some pretty colors. I'm going to rip that off, and I'm going to use it for my own purposes. Or that shell uh, of that coconut is actually uh, pretty useful as a shelter for me. I'm going to take it and use it for that." Here, here's one thing uh, that I think they completely lap us in in terms of our own pincer grasp. Um, as I had mentioned before, they've got the ganglia mm-hmm. on their tentacles, and uh, so ganglia are controlling every sucker, right? And they have exquisite control over their body in that way. And they can fold the two sides of its sucker together to form a pincer grasp, and so it can do that with every single one. So it has like a hundred pincer grasps to our to our one little wow. thumb. And finger. It's pretty pretty impressive, and like I said earlier, octopi are capable of playing. Like their yeah. their minds are advanced enough that they're constantly learning. They're they, they're they're geared to again live on the streets, live in the jungle. 1970s New York. So if you take them out of that 1970s New York. Uh, and you put them in suburbia, they're going to go a little stir-crazy, and uh-huh. they're going to start just messing with stuff just to be messing with it. And that's exactly what happens in aquarium environments. Yeah. I, the stories are just n- numerous. Uh, anytime you, if you talk to someone who's working in an aquarium or uh, you know, look up any accounts online, and people say, oh, yeah, we found out that this, this octopus was sneaking out of the, of the aquarium at night and eating sharks, or we, we have to constantly keep the octopus from taking the entire uh, aquarium apart, taking apart, uh, you know, suction uh, equipment, taking apart cameras, taking apart submarines, taking apart a, a robot uh, submarine. Yes, in, in one of the tanks, part by part, which I thought was awesome. Um, there was other an, another account um, that uh, one of the keepers had given um, some of the octopus uh, some shrimp, and there was a slightly spoiled one. Mm-hmm. And so the octopus actually stuffed it down the drain while ma- maintaining eye contact with her. Wow. As if to say, really? You're going to try to pass that by me? Yeah, and th- th- we've actually studied this, too. It's not all just like uh, sort of uh, backroom accounts. Uh, uh, read uh, an interview with uh, Jennifer Mather, who's a comparative psychologist at University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada. And um, she was part of an experiment where they gave a pair of octopi in an empty tank uh, a floating pill bottle. That's it. Just a floating pill bottle and two board uh, octopi, and uh, they watched them in a se- like in twenty different times, like in a sequence. Uh, they watched them do the. She said exactly the kind of thing that we would do if we were to say bounce a ball off a wall, like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. Just out of boredom, they started just bouncing this uh, pill bottle around and flipping it around the tank. Which you know, of course, when you're in captivity, that's that's going to happen. They're going to go a bit stir crazy. So it's important to have things to enrich them with. Yeah, and, and certainly they've shown themselves capable of solving mazes. Uh, they like puzzles that generally if you see an octopus uh, on display in an aquarium, it will not be an empty container. They'll have various things to interact with. They'll mm-hmm. be given food inside of a, a toy of some kind where they have yeah. to actually work at it because they're active creatures and they need an active environment. Or sometimes they are asked to uh, predict the World Cup winner. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
like our friend Paul the octopus, who um, yeah, born January 26, 2008, died October 26, 2010. Um, anyone who follows uh, soccer or uh, cephalopod uh, news probably uh, caught this one. But uh, uh, Paul lived at the Sea Life Center in Oberhausen, Germany. And uh, they had this uh, this gimmick set up where um, he was uh, he was able to correctly predict the winner of each of uh, Germany's national football team's seven matches in the 2010 FIFA World Cup, as well as the outcome of the final. Um, Didn't he have like a the for the outcome of the final? Wasn't it like an 86 percent accuracy? Yeah. And yeah, and the, and the other level that you just said before that was like a six for six. Yeah, and it was 100%. based on like where you would pick food from one or, one of two places. So it wasn't. Kind, it's not like the the octopi had a Twitter account or a blog. Yeah, um, he, he was he was just making a, basically a random choice, and, then, and that's the big criticism here. He wasn't actually no. making predictions, and and there was all, there also been accusations that there was some bias involved on the part of the people caring for the octopus. But uh, the food container had the team's logo on it, right? Yeah, yeah, but. But it was still an exciting day in uh, in cephalopod media. Hey, I mean, I gave some attention to cephalopods, so yeah. there you go. That was a win. Yeah. All right. Well, we mentioned the Nautilus earlier. Yes. So let's uh, let's discuss the Nautilus. The Nautilus is a much older organism, and it's less advanced. It's less bright uh, compared to other cephalopods. And um, it's it's tiny. Yeah, they're uh, the sole surviving family. Uh, of an ex- in, uh, nautiloids in general, which includes like the nautilus and the paper nautilus, which we mentioned in a previous mm-hmm. episode. Sole surviving uh, members of the externally shelled uh, uh, cephalopod uh, family that li- that thrived in tropical oceans 450 uh, to 150 million years ago. Yeah, they diverged from the, from their cousins, squid, octopus, and cuttlefish, about 400 million years ago. Yeah, which makes them more, I should say, on the tiny scale in comparison. Yeah, and they're fascinating organisms, just beautiful to uh, to look at, and the shells are amazing. But they have tiny, tiny brains, and they lack that uh, dedicated learning region that we see in other cephalopods. Yet what's amazing is that we've, uh, in experiments, we've shown that they do have a form of short-term memory, that we're still trying to really understand how it works, mm-hmm. because they shouldn't really be capable of any kind of higher brain function. Um, they're Again, they're kind of the dull knife in the cephalopod drawer, but... Um, but uh, in experiments, they found that if they uh, uh, use flashes of light uh, paired with uh, with uh, food, mm-hmm. they'll uh, actually be able to train the cephalopod to extend its tentacles whenever there's that light. It begins to associate the light with food, and it will retain this memory for about 24 hours, and then it's gone. So it, these guys are kind of like uh, Guy Pierce in uh, Memento. They 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 only have the uh, the short term memory and then it fades. Well, what I liked uh, is that. Or did new, I get that right? No, I haven't seen Memento in a while. Uh, well, Memento. Or did he's, he not he's, have it's, Everything's in sort of reverse, right? Like oh, he's, the and he's got short term. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I really like the way a new scientist described it. Uh, it's called "Simple Minded Nautilus Reveals Flash of Memory." That's the the article title. They they say that first of all, the food that was offered with the flash of light was an irresistible mixture of pulverized tilapia heads and water. Nice. So first of all, it was irresistible. It was irresistible. Yeah. Um, and then they said that that when um, when they were reacting to it, that their tentacles went. Crazy. Now, keep in mind too that in comparison to the octopus's eight arms, um, that a nautilus has for for the females fifty arms and the males have ninety. So mm-hmm. it is quite a display when they are right. waving them around, um, and that they were panting too, hmm. which was interesting. The panting nautilus. Yes, by Robert Lamb. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to deal with some squid intelligence. Specifically, we're going to talk about the Humboldt squid, also known as Diablos Rojos. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in, so you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. 
Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All right, we're back. Uh, the Humboldt Squid, also known as a Jumbo Squid, also known, again, as, say it for us. Diablo Rojas. There you go. Much better than me. Yes. Uh, in fact, they were named that by a Mexican fisherman who who noted their very aggressive behavior. Yeah. Occasionally, um, uh, I mean, there are tales of uh, of sailors dying at the hands of these guys, right? I mean, they'll, they'll like slit their throats. I don't think they have shanks. <laughs> they don't have shanks. <laughs> I, uh, at any rate, they, they have, there have been some definite violent encounters with uh, with Humboldt squid, and they, they have this reputation as being a very aggressive creature. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been some fascinating experiments where they they like put they take decoy Humboldt squid down into the deep, and they actually uh, you're able to explore. Then they're not just mindlessly aggressive creatures; they're, no. I mean, they're still very intelligent animals. But um, under the right circumstances, they can be extremely aggressive. But what's uh, more interesting here uh, for us as we're discussing cephalopod intelligence is the the idea that they are able to coordinate with each other when they yeah, hunt. Yeah, yeah. They hunt in schools containing as many as 1,200 other squid. They swim at speeds from 3 to 15 miles an hour, and they can eject themselves from the water and glide through the air to escape predators. Yeah. So, yeah, they have huge brains for their body size, and uh, and it's been suggested that they might actually be as smart as dogs. Oh, that's right. Uh, William Gilly, who who is featured in the book Kraken by Wendy mm-hmm. Williams, actually talks about that, and he studies them, of course. Um, has a research center, but uh, yeah, he, he, as smart as dogs, he claims. And uh, th- he even says that, uh, or not, he doesn't, but Wendy Williams does, says that diver Scott Castle once saw one fiddling with the latch of an underwater cage he had just closed. So, huh. so know. they have that same uh, curious nature, that same problem-solving ability. Yeah, um, this is from the National Zoo, form equals function. Uh, these squid actually have two large optic lobes in the squid brain, and that testifies to the importance of vision for locating prey for, the, prey for these guys and gals. And, um, you know, they also rely on taste and texture to locate food, and they have highly developed lobes for storing chemical and tactile information. So that's interesting to hear about the diver who was witnessing the, the squid trying to open the lock and the idea that, you know, it is it has this ability to plan and it has this ability to store the tactile information and try to figure out this lock. Yeah. There are accounts of them uh, actually stealing car keys and driving as far as Mexico City. 
Yeah, yeah. I read that yeah. definitely. Supposedly, yeah. there's a there's a whole pack of them <laughs> that have like an apartment there. I don't know what they do for a living, but uh, fish, of course. Yeah, yeah. of course. Um, and it, real quick, we we mentioned the colossal squid in our uh, our other episode uh, that we recorded this week on gigantism. But I found it really interesting that the uh, the, the brain of the colossal squid mm-hmm. is actually donut shaped, and the esophagus passes straight through the center of it. So it's just a, a different way of thinking about uh, the brain of an organism and how it fits into the uh, the overall morphology. Well, and I think a lot of times too that we come at it from our human centric um, fashion, and we don't necessarily think about cephalopods um, in this way, but. Um, it is interesting to see that their mouths are encircled with arms, mm-hmm. whereas we sort of think about our own flailing tentacles on either side of us. And that does certainly um, color the way or actually order the way that their brains are arranged. So there is this difference of arrangement in the in the brains of cephalopods, obviously, versus humans. And we already talked about ganglion on tentacles. Um, but then you start to look at the eyes of cephalopods, and this is where there is a major difference. There's a lot of similarity, right? Cephalopods have camera eye, camera-like eyes, like ours, with a lens that projects images onto the retina. The difference between humans and cephalopods, or vertebrates and cephalopods in this case, uh, is that our many arm friends don't have blind spots like we do. Because when we look at an image, there's a blind spot in the middle, and that is owing to the fiber optic nerve, which is going in front of the retina as opposed to behind the retina like a cephalopod. And this is actually an upgrade. This is, oh, a, wow. you know, this is an advantage. This is something that we don't have. Um, and I also wanted to, to mention that another difference is that cephalopods have horizontal pupils. So because the eyes can rotate, uh, thanks to a balancing organ that they have called a, st- a statocyst, they can always keep their pupils horizontal. And it doesn't matter what uh, position their body is. It's always horizontal. Well, so they just have fantastic visual coverage of the uh the world around them. Yeah, their brain can interpret visual information no matter what their position is. Uh, they don't have to account for the position of the eye like we do. And if you think about it, if we turn around quickly, uh, you know, we have we are very disoriented, and we have to sit there and figure out our location in space before we can begin to take in data in a way that's meaningful to us. But not these guys. They can. I mean, this is an amaz- amazing piece of machinery for them. Um, they can also see polarized light, and this allows them to communicate by creating changing patterns on their skin. And uh, and this, I thought, was fascinating. Um, the reason for this, that they can see the polarized light, is because the cephalopod eyes started out as light-sensitive skin cells hmm. that folded inwards to form the structure that they have now, rather than as an extension of the brain as, as we have. Wow. So that's, that's again, great. another difference between the way, ways that their brains and eyes work. Huh. So while we've, like both species, or not just species, but both uh, vertebrates and, uh, and squid, they have reached sort of similar conclusions with, uh, with their eyes, but uh, from different starting points. So. Yeah, just to know that the eyes, the, the, the root material there came from, from skin, yeah. from skin cells is very interesting. Fascinating. So let's move on to the last real cephalopod we're going to discuss here. Um, and we're really talking about the Fabergé egg of the cephalopod world, <laughs> the uh, the cuttlefish. Yes. Now, uh, back in the uh, stuff in the science lab days, uh, right at the end, we did an, an episode on cuttlefish, and there's a lot of great information that's cuttlefish specific in there. But we're we're going to talk about it a little bit here, especially as it as it deals with intelligence, because the cuttlefish has one of the largest brain to body size ra- ratios of all invertebrates, and uh, and you see a lot of the the, the the really impressive attributes um, um, involving intelligence and nervous systems mm-hmm. in cephalopods are are really highlighted in the cuttlefish's design because you have uh, just rapid shifts in color. Uh, they um, they're fairly social creatures. I mean, they're not social in in the in a way that's really comparable to say uh, you know dogs or or primates, mm-hmm. but there are, there are some very interesting social interactions here. There's a certain amount of communication that takes place through uh, the use of their uh, colorful skin, uh, which uh, uh, contains these uh, chromatophores, uh, 
that uh, can lighten and darken, and they can shift uh, just really rapidly um, from uh, different colors and intensities. So red, black, and yellow are some of the uh, chromatophores that emerge. But in addition to that, there's this luminosity, so it gives it a greater range. And in fact, with, with other sea creatures like fish they have four rods in their eyes and they're able to perceive Mm -hmm. more color than say our three rotted eyes so when when we see these incredible displays of color uh, from cephalopods keep in mind that we're not even really seeing the full spectrum right these creatures the cuttlefish are just remarkable to uh, to see at at an aquarium now generally you have to wait for uh, a large pack of people with cell phone cameras to get out of the way because you go to an aquarium you want to take a really bad direct flash cell phone photo of everything there <laughs> apparently that's the apparently the big thing these days but if you can actually get the uh, the tank to yourself for a little bit they're just really fascinating to watch the color shifts they, they kind of hover for starters mm-hmm. they're not uh, they're a lot they're a lot more interesting to look at in an aquarium because octopi uh you know you may catch them when they're active but they're they're going to be sticking to the corners and mm-hmm. and, and all that, where the, the the cuttlefish is going to hover out there in the, in, in the middle, and he's going to kind of, uh, he or she's going to kind of hover around, has this little hover skirt that goes around the edges. Um, and then they're going to slowly change colors, and then there may be a drastic change in color. Yeah, and all of that is uh, predicated on the fact that they are controlled by nerves. Yeah. So it gives them that instantaneous color change. And when we talk about those chromatophores, we are talking about tens of thousands of organs yeah. here that are controlling that. And so think of it um, similar to the way that pixels form on images of a computer screen. That's what you're seeing on their skin, basically. Um, you talked about their communication and, and their their um, level of, of social ness. And I wanted to bring up Jean Bull of Penn Millersville University. She's a scientist. And she says that they uh, the males have all kinds of really impressive displays and that, in fact, the cuttlefish can simultaneously adjust one side of uh, his body to show a dominant display toward other males. Mm-hmm while um, the other side of his body shows a calm display towards a potential mate. Wow. So really aggressive pattern on the left where, where a foe is, and on the right, I don't know exactly what it would be, but let's say a little heart design. Uh, it's Not really hard, well, but you know what I'm saying. It's kind of like he's flexing the muscle and looking all bad on one side, but then he's, he's kind of smiling and winking out of the other eye. From football playoffs to basketball madness, TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd, cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at Amazon.com. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it gonna like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. 
Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. And this is interesting. Uh, during mating, they display oh, yes. a zebra pattern. Ooh. Which I just automatically always associate with wrestlers. Really? And bodybuilders. Because yeah. they're always wearing the, the, the pants with the zebra pattern. You do pattern see some it. zebra patterns uh, with, popular with some of the, uh, the boys. Uh, but uh, but uh, this is intricate, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is a whole language that, that we don't necessarily have access to that we can witness and it can tell us something about ourselves to some degree, but we can't even fully imagine because we don't have the, the language ourselves to yeah. express it. There's another interesting thing that goes on with cephalopod, uh, I mean, not cephalopod, uh, cuttlefish mating that uh, is really fascinating, and that's where you'll have these dominant cuttlefish, like these big brutish-looking cuttlefish that are that are not the cute little guys that you didn't see at the aquarium, but big, rugged, old man Cthulhu-looking cuttlefish, and they're, they're really bossy, and they're getting the big fights over the, the females because, you know, they like, they really want to mate with the, with the females. But then you'll have the smaller males that will, that will disguise themselves as females. Like they'll, uh, you know, like a lot of cephalopods, the cuttlefish has a, has, has a, a lot of control over just how. Like drag it's, queens, I'm thinking bosom buddies. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. That, it's that kind of thing. Like they know that they don't stand a chance walking in there as a small male because mm-hmm. they're just going to get beat up and tore up and then the, the big male's going to mate. So they disguise themselves as a female and then they, they move in close, and then the big beefy uh, cuttlefish. He looks at this and he's like, "Oh yeah, it looks like I got two dates for the night." Uh, you know, that's a total win for me. Meanwhile, the disguised smaller male actually gets in there and mates with the female. Okay, so you really just did um, talk about the premise for the sitcom Booze and Bodies. Really? And not, that was the not, that was not the, the premise. Well, actually, the premise was really that they, the rent was much lower if they were at this oh, all okay. women's boarding. But they used that to their advantage to to advance uh, their agendas with the ladies. Oh, there you there. go. Yeah. The other really awesome thing about uh, cuttlefish um, that, uh, that that I may have mentioned on here before is their use of um, pseudomorphs, which means false form. And uh, what they'll do is a, a pseudomorph is a bubble of ink surrounded by mucus, and it occupies the same amount of space as the cuttlefish. It's a decoy. So uh, what will happen if they're uh, in a situation where they're, they're threatened, they will shift their color suddenly to where they're really dark like the surrounding. Mm-hmm. Then they'll shoot out the pseudomorph, and then they'll, they'll turbo out of there with their jets. Yeah, their jet propulsion, by the yeah. way, is amazing. So they create... A copy of themselves, more or less. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not like an artistic expression, but they'll, uh, they'll create, you know, appropriate mass replica of themselves that is just ink inside of mucus. And then they'll jet away really fast at the same time. So it's like sleight of hand where they leave the decoy where they just were and they're already jetting away. And then when something tries to eat the pseudomorph, of course, then they just get a whole bunch of ink, uh, which also contains, um, Dopamine and L-dopa, uh, a precursor to dopamine, uh, which may temporarily paralyze the sense of smell uh, for the oh, creature that, okay. that zoomed in. So it's just a fantastic uh, and deceptive means of self-defense. In terms of their intelligence, again, Gene Bull, uh, the scientist, devised a couple of experiments to study this rather than just sort of the stimulus response mm-hmm. exp- experiments that you see sometimes. Um, again, in the book, Kraken, Wendy Williams describes this experiment as a tank in the shape of a clock uh, with escape routes, two of them, only one open at a time, and that's at the 3 o'clock position and the 6 o'clock. Okay. Excuse me, the 9 o'clock, 3 no. and 9, 3 and 9. And so the cuttlefish enter through the 6 o'clock position, and then immediately they see a cue at the 12 o'clock position. So the cue is either algae or brick. Mm-hmm. Algae would indicate like, hey, on the right, that's your escape hatch. Um, the brick would indicate on the left, that's your, that's going to be your escape hatch. So they actually get to learn these cues that, hmm. hey, okay, when I see the algae, I know to take a 90 degree turn to the right. And it's fascinating. She said this was, 
um, this process of if-then propositions that we learn, and that in humans it's represented as the first steps in development of logic and our ability to use reason and decision-making. Huh, fascinating. All right, so one final squid to mention, and this one is... Is is even uh, even more dubious than uh, the idea of uh, of ancient krakens creating uh, uh, art out of dead fright dolphins, and that is the idea <laughs> of the mega squid, which um, was featured on the TV show Future, uh, Future is Wild, uh, and uh, which you can I believe occasionally catch on uh, various Discovery Channel, uh, Discovery Channel or Animal Planet. Uh, just check local listings; it pops up from time to time. But uh, the, it was a you know sp- speculative episode where they're talking about. The future. What if humans weren't around? What might evolve and fill that void? What would become the dominant species? And so they had some some CGI stuff going on and some some fabulous ideas of what might happen. And one of the the cooler things that they introduced was a mega squid, which was a twelve foot tall, eight ton terrestrial air breathing squid that roams the northern forests of a humanless Earth. And they, it, it's a pretty cool design. I mean, it's, on one level, it's kind of ridiculous because... Well, with the whole air pressure yeah. issue, first of all, right? Yeah. Going from, from, from the, the, uh, the pressure in the ocean to land. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to, to think. But their, their argument was that it, it's not just a situation of a, a giant squid crawling out or a giant octopus crawling out of the water, it would have been like a slow evolutionary process. Okay, and, so 500 million years yeah, later. Yeah, and they uh, and it had legs, which they uh, they made the case that uh, the, each of these legs, which looked kind of like an elephant leg, uh, contain a network of circular and vertical muscles uh, that form uh, these limbs and make them strong enough to carry this eight-ton weight. Uh, they have um, a vocal sac that vibrates to produce sound. That was their other okay. uh, thing that they came up with for the mega squid, and uh, they also have uh, two large tentacles that they grab things out of the woods to eat. So it's kind of neat. It's, it's uh, like I say, don't don't make any any hard Vegas bets on uh, on mega squids uh, taking over the the planet anytime in the uh, distant future, even. But uh, but it's a cool idea, and it's it's interesting to think of cephalopods not merely as this interesting creature confined to the ocean, but one of Earth's more remarkable creatures that maybe could uh, become the primary player in a future Earth. Well, in that context, it is really interesting to to imagine what the brain would look like once it became terrestrial, um, because as Bull had said before, is that uh, one of the things that's really exciting to her about cephalod, cephalod intelligence is that uh, we know that their relatives are clams and snails. Yeah. Not, not, not so much going on smart there. So whatever happened to the cephalopods was different. And she wants to get to the bottom of why they're using their intelligence, uh, why why their brains developed in the way they that they did. And uh, what does that tell us about ourselves? Yeah, as we discussed in the Giganism episode, as animals get bigger, they have fewer predators. And, and certainly the mega squid is not going to have the, the, the survival challenge that uh, that smaller cephalopods have evolved to deal with. So you can imagine this thing might be pretty stupid. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, intellectually, it just might. There might not be a lot going on because all it has to do is wander around the forests and eat other CGI creatures. So, <laughs> little Jar Jar here, you know. Nice. All right, as we close out here, uh, our episode on the mind of the Kraken. I thought it would be fun uh, to bring in uh, Jonathan Strickland, co-host of the Tech Stuff podcast, to read The Kraken by Alfred Lloyd Tennyson. Yes, and this poem is based on an old Norse legend of gigantic sea monsters who prey on ships and drag them underneath the ocean. Below the thunders of the upper deep, far, far beneath in the abysmal sea, his ancient, dreamless, uninvaded sleep, the Kraken sleepeth. Faintest sunlights flee about his shadowy sides. Above him swell huge sponges of millennial growth and height, and far away into the sickly light from many a wondrous grot and secret cell, unnumbered and enormous polypi winnow with giant arms the slumbering green. There hath he lain for ages and will lie, battening upon huge sea worms in his sleep until the latter fire shall heat the deep. Then, once by man and angels to be seen in roaring he shall rise and on the surface die 
So there you go. Fantastic reading from uh, Jonathan Strickland. Uh, if you if you haven't checked out Tech Stuff, uh, be sure to check that out. It's a great uh, podcast. Uh, Chris and Jonathan tackle all sorts of gadgety, techy, nerdy uh, topics in uh, in awesome form. And they are wonderful punsters, by yeah. the way, too. So if you have uh, something you would like to share with us about the mind of the Kraken, uh, about the possibility uh, that this Kraken theory is is, is true, or maybe you have thoughts about the Mega Squid. Maybe you have uh, worked with uh, cephalopods at one point or another, and have some some uh, in some your fun cubicle tidbits. next to you. Yeah, or yeah. you know, or if you have some octopi escape stories, let us know about those. If you have ever um, snuck away from work and left a bunch of squid ink inside of uh, a thin layer of mucus in your place as a decoy, we would love to hear about that as well. <laughs> you can find us on uh, Facebook, where we are stuff to blow your mind. And you can find us on Twitter, where our handle is BlowTheMind. And you can drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Thank you.